You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to Page to Stage. A conversation with theater makers. We're your hosts. That's Brian. And that's Mary. Join us as we focus the spotlight back on the theater maker to uncover their process. We speak with folks in the industry that often aren't heard from. Such as stage managers, producers, crew members, marketing professionals. And everything in between. We hope you enjoy this episode. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi, my name is Richard Patterson. I work as the International Licensing Director at Music Theatre International, headquartered here in New York City. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I know we were just speaking a little bit before we started recording that we're really excited preparing for this episode. Uh, This was one of the episodes that uh, I had asked Mary early on in 2021 when we were brainstorming what kind of positions in the theater we haven't really hit or paths in the theater and licensing came to mind. So I'm excited we got you to come on board for this episode. Thanks for having me. And when we initially were emailing you to get an idea of what we'd be talking about for this episode, you came back with a lot of great things that we created talking points for for today. But you referred to MTI as, in quotes, shepherds of Broadway musicals once they wrap up their first class lives on Broadway and their equity tours. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you can begin by just telling us what the onboarding process is like for new musicals that MTI is adding to the catalog. Sure. So that really varies a lot between shows because every show has its own different situation. But typically the the most common route for a show to join MTI's catalog is as it's beginning to wrap up its run, either on Broadway or on a national tour, Once the authors and the rights holders are starting to feel like the show needs to have someone to shepherd its future life and to license the show to other groups, be it schools, community theaters, professional theaters, sometimes non-equity tours, at that point, MTI will, will usually become involved. And then at that point, we'll start acquiring a show. It's a lengthy process. It has many different parts, but typically it starts with, you start the conversation with the authors and the rights holders. Um, sometimes there are bids between different companies, so MTI and our competitors. And then essentially, once we know that we're going to acquire the show, we start the process of bringing that show on board. So we start figuring out all of the music materials. We start figuring out what resources we're gonna offer for the show. And then we start to kind of come up with a plan for licensing. So we'll roll out that might take many years, uh, just depending on the show. Because if a show is gonna be on tour for several years, sometimes our licensing won't begin for several years. So sometimes we've got the show, we know that we've acquired it, but we won't license it for several years time. Or maybe we will be able to start licensing it in select countries, but not in the United States. So it really just depends show by show. So basically, the answer is there's not a typical answer. It just depends. I have to say, I was always so excited back in high school, checking the MTI website, like the theater nerd that I was, and seeing what new shows were being offered that I could pitch to my drama club advisor to maybe do at our school. So I think 
you know, talking about that process sounds really like familiar. We would, we would look up shows that would be announced and we'd be like, get on the waiting list. And it would take years to actually maybe get it. You know, I can relate to that. I was totally that theater nerd who had the little CD booklets out on their like living room floor, listening to all the cast recordings. And I was, you know, obsessed with musical theater growing up and it's kind of a dream come true to get to work in licensing now because it's uh it's sort of the uh behind the scenes type job that i guess i could have envisioned myself doing since i don't sing i don't act i don't dance i've kind of tried my hand at writing a little bit but uh in terms of musical theater writing i don't know if it's ever going to be a career for me so this is kind of the perfect way for me to stay involved with theater but not be on stage which i'm not cut out for and the world is better for it. <laughs> I hope all of our listeners went back, rewinded to about 10 seconds ago when Richard just said that, because that is huge. Let's talk about visibility for young and up-and-coming theater makers, right? I mean, I would argue most people in the industry come in through singing or through dancing or through acting, through a performance track, and then they either continue in that direction or they find another way. And I just love that you found that other way that is like perfect for you, especially as what you've dubbed as a theater nerd. I, I just love that. And I really hope that our listeners really take that to heart because it's, it's it, it is just like, it will change your life essentially because you don't have to, you don't have to do the acting. You don't have to do the singing. You totally can. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's other options. And that's kind of, that's kind of why we started this podcast, right, Brian? I mean, to really totally feature, is. feature all of the different people who are a part of this this industry and, and what they do and showcase what they do because it take it takes a village yes i'm so glad you just uh brought that up and like just like brought focus to that comment because it's so true and even mary in our personal conversations we talk about that all the time in our own lives you know it's it's a special side of the industry it's like how people always say the stage manager is sort of the un, unsung hero of a show you know, we're sort of behind the scenes. People don't usually spotlight musical theater licensing. So I'm grateful that you're having us on to, to speak with you. Now, would you say that your process differs slightly or maybe the beginning the beginning process of onboarding a, a new title um, to your catalog differs between a big, fancy, like Tony Award winning Broadway show versus maybe a newer, possibly a more unknown title? Is, is there a difference there in your process? Or do you guys get or like original musicals? Or new works we i mean we basically will will take on any show that we feel a passion for that we have a connection with the authors um we don't have a limitation in, in that regard i would say that basically when we onboard a show the the general process is pretty much the same we're always basically first going to have some fundamental deal to take the show on and then we're going to figure out the materials and the licensing strategy so it, it doesn't vary vastly. Um, and your question about sort of the big, splashy new Broadway musicals versus the more indie musicals, we try to treat all of the shows the same. That's our mandate as a company, is that we treat each show as an individual show, and then we try to come up with the strategy and the plan that's going to be the most workable for that show. So if we're taking on a big, splashy new Broadway musical, it could be one that the big regional theaters are gonna to wanna to pick up and run with, and it's gonna be the highlight of their season. If we're taking on an off-Broadway musical that may not have the same name recognition around the country, we still are gonna put out a marketing campaign for the show and try to get the show in front of as many eyes as possible so that we can try to find the widest reach for that show. But the strategy, it's gonna vary because we're trying to basically be the matchmaker between 
the show and the authors and the theaters. So we're trying to find a way that we can place the show with the theaters that are gonna make the most impact for that show. Well, it sounds like none of your work days are exactly the same or identical in any way, but can you try and paint a picture for us of what your day-to-day is sort of like? Sure, well, it's a little different now that we're all working remotely, but I would say a typical day I spend probably at least about a half an hour to an hour on meetings that are liaising with my colleagues. So either we discuss within our department, our strategy for different shows and for different situations that are coming up that we need to discuss because I'm the international licensing director. I have to also have a lot of meetings with our UK office, with our Australasia office in Melbourne. And also we talk through a lot of problems that they're having or situations that have come up to find the best solutions for uh, the strategy for each show. So I would say that takes up some of the time. And then the rest of the time, at least right now, is mostly speaking with customers, uh, answering emails. And most people now at this point are planning for shows that are quite far in advance or they have had some really ambitious plans that they want to start their shows while the pandemic is ongoing, if it's safe in their community. But then sometimes the situation develops differently than they've been expecting. So we're there to be that uh, sympathetic ear and to try to help all of our customers reschedule their shows so that they can do them when it's safe to do that for their community. Because as we can sort of figure out at this point, the end of this pandemic is going to vary based on where the people are, even within the United States. So that's going to be a challenge as we're going forward. You originally started your career at MTI in the amateur licensing department. Uh, I'm wondering when you bring on a show, are the productions that first get licensed out professional or amateur? Oh, that's a great question. And what those differences might be. Mm-hmm. So basically the life, the life cycle of a show tends to be First, it has its big, splashy Broadway life. Then it usually has some kind of national tour. And then after that, if MTI is acquiring the show, it joins our catalog. And then we structure the rollout typically so that the big professional theaters in the country are going to get the first look at the show. So those folks usually get to stage the show first. And then after that, we start to envision what the rollout's going to look like. So... um, Actually, sort of to backtrack in my own answer, usually when the tour is ending, if it's a show that we don't need to wait for the exact end of the tour, then we'll start to layer in some of the professional theaters around the country just to start getting the show out there. And then usually we'll do a broader professional licensing cycle. And then after the show's been with the professional theaters, it varies in terms of how long, maybe six months, a year, two years, depending on the show. If it's a really huge show, it may be out there in the professional theaters for a few years because within one community, you may have one huge professional theater that wants to do the show first and they're gonna get the first priority. And then there might be another professional theater that still feels like there is room for them to do the show and still you know, sell tickets for it. So um, after a few years of that, then it gets rolled out to amateur licensing. And at that point, schools, community theaters, religious organizations, they can all apply for the show once we've uh, put it in general release, which is what we usually call sort of the the big release of the show so that most people can do the show. And at that point, there may be some regional restrictions because maybe one or two professional theaters will still be scheduling the show for their season. But then for the most part, amateur theaters can apply and do the show at their school, at their local theater. And, you know, that's that's really the the trajectory of most shows that enter our catalog. 
you know, there are some examples. I'm struggling to think of a specific example, but there are some exceptions to that. But for the most part, that's the way it always goes. So in your earlier, when you were explaining just then, you said that there are a few times where while a tour is still running, you would sprinkle in some uh, professional productions throughout the country. And I'm wondering what the decisioning process is to decide what types of shows that would be. And then whose decision is that? Does that lie within you guys as the the licensing company? Does that lie within the original producers of that production? Like, is it a conversation or collaboration? That would always be a conversation because MTI essentially is there to serve the authors and the rights holders of the show. So we're always going to do what's best for the musical. So if it's still on tour and the, and the tour wants to protect certain regions because they're still going to go there, then we always respect that because we want the tour to be successful so that the show gets out there and is seen by all of the folks who are going to eventually license it. So um, it's usually a conversation between the rights holders of the show or the authors the producers of the show, the folks who are booking the tour, and MTI. So it's it's always a conversation. You know, basically, our job is, as I sort of said in my email to you, to shepherd the show, but also we are kind of doing air traffic control as well. So we're just trying to make sure that everything is, is uh, going smoothly as we're uh, rolling the show out so that there's not a giant professional theater that's within 15 miles of another giant professional theater, and then they're going to butt heads and be upset that, you know, they're both licensed for the same show. So we're always trying to manage that and make sure that we are protecting the theaters who are going to be doing those big productions early on. Yeah. So that leads me to my next question of what are the deciding factors that go into whether or not a particular theater or school is able to license a particular musical? I live right outside of New York City in New Jersey, um, and we were always pretty much fighting for the professional theaters that were in New York because we were too close to do any of the shows that were currently either in an off-Broadway run or a Broadway run. Right. So I would essentially say that it really depends on the situation in the show. But essentially, the answer is that when there's a big professional production or there's a plan for a tour or a revival, then we'll often restrict around that. Um, Usually it has to do with whatever the uh, authors have agreed with the people who are producing the show. And then usually, uh, you know, if someone's going to say, I want to do the brand new splashy revival of this classic Broadway musical, then they're going to build in some period of time where for a certain mileage around New York City or whichever city they're going to do this revival in, there's not going to be productions. Uh, And sometimes there's exceptions to that if it's an educational institution or something like that. But for the most part, that's that's a rule. It's so funny because my high school hosts like a summer theater program and it's not for, you know, anybody in the area could do it. And they had announced that we were and auditioned us for Into the Woods uh, back in 2014 in the summer. And then realized they couldn't get the rights to it because the roundabout revival off Broadway was going to happen the following Um, spring. We switched to Sweeney Todd, all went well, but it was just so funny that like, you know, it was months away from its off Broadway revival and our little high school production couldn't happen because of that. So it, it, it was always just so funny to like think about that kind of situation. I really feel for you and you're not alone. (laughs) No one is alone. 
you know, what I'll say on the subject is that we really want to get the shows out there as much as possible. So whenever we can not restrict a show, we do. Because it's really to our advantage to get the shows out there, to license them, because we, we are sort of at the intersection between the art of theater and the commerce of it. So, of course, part of our goal is to have residual income coming in for the authors. So once a show is in general released for amateurs, the more productions, the better both for the show, for the authors, for MTI. So we never restrict a show unless we have to. So then what's your relationship like with an author when you're working on a show? And is oh. are you directly working with that particular author or does it move through your department in any way? As we're taking on a new show, it really just depends. It depends on who has a relationship with the authors uh, before we're starting to acquire the show. Oftentimes, the person who's going to be taking charge of the author relationship would be our president and CEO, whose name is Drew Cohen. Um, and then as we're taking the show on, the authors or the rights holders or various people working on the first class Broadway production are quite involved with MTI. Um, if it's in terms of acquiring the music materials, then a lot of times it'll be the composer, the orchestrator, the lyricist. And then as we're preparing the script, the book writer and the lyricist as well, and uh, then as we're starting to roll the show out, when questions start to come up about, can I change this aspect of the script? Or is there a particular character where I can change this gender of the character? Those questions we'll always put to the authors because we want to make sure that they're comfortable with anything that our, our licensees are doing in terms of uh, anything that they're veering away from what has been written on the script. Because that's essentially what we're out there to do. We want to license the show and we want people who are licensing the show to follow the letter of the script and the score. So anytime they, they vary from that, we want to make sure the authors are comfortable with that change. Yeah. It's like you're protecting the integrity of the author's words yeah. and, and ideas. In your experience, how receptive are most authors to particular things? And if there's any examples that you could give us without giving specific names or uh, production. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it depends a lot on the type of organization that's asking for the change. You know, if there is someone and they're asking about, um, you know, they're, they're a Catholic school and they have specific sensitivities to some language or certain them thematic elements, if it's something that's not central to the show, they're usually open to that. Yeah, like um, don't ask to do Spring Awakening and then say you can't do half the script at a Catholic school. Exactly. <laughs> And in other instances, when you are, when someone's asking for a wholesale change, they want to change where the show is set. They want to change the time period. They want to change some major aspect of the show, or they want to cut some song that the authors really feel is pivotal to the story. In that case, it really just depends author to author, but most of them, they're, they're not going to want some huge change to the show. Um, I'm trying to think about, uh, I can't, I don't know if I can give you a specific example, but um, you know, there are some cases where when we're taking on the show, we try to make different versions of the show available so that we can make the, the show uh, more widely producible. So for example, we took on Avenue Q school edition I did and that. yeah. And, and the original Broadway production had that song called the internet is for porn, which is never going to fly. I was Trekkie monster. Oh, really? Okay. Did you do school edition or did you do the regular edition? Yes, me. Social life is online. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so 
when we were taking that show on, it was pretty clear that schools are not going to be able to do the internet is for porn. Maybe the edgy New York City schools could get away with it, but pretty much no one else. But the show has a lot of other great messages. The show has really fun characters. It's funny. It's Otherwise, it's a perfect show for schools. So when we took the show on, it was a conversation with the authors to write that song, My Social Life is Online. And that really gives schools the ability to produce a show. It doesn't take away from the central themes. They worked it into the way that the story resolves at the end with Kate Monster and all of that stuff. So it worked out for everybody. The authors were happy. MTI was happy. Customers are happy. And now having an Q school edition gets done as opposed to, you know, if we only had the regular original version of Avenue Q, the show wouldn't have as broad of a life. Certainly lots of, you know, regional theaters, community theaters would still want to do the show, but there would just be certain people that wouldn't be able to do the show just by the nature of the show. Um, And in addition to the school edition, we also will oftentimes create a, a junior version of the show, which is a 60 to 70 minute version that is mainly geared towards schools, but other youth performance groups as well. And those changes and cuts and adaptations are usually or I should say always done in collaboration with the authors and the rights holders so that there's a version that conveys the story and is also musically accessible for the students. Because as we know, you know, when someone is 12 or 13 and they're trying to tackle, let it go, it is not going to be as easy as, you know, when Casey Levy is doing it on Broadway. So you need to sometimes adapt the music. And also one of the great things about the Broadway junior shows is they try to make it as we try to make it as easy as possible to produce the show out of the box. So when you get the package of materials, it has a director's guide that'll give you tips on how to produce the show. You know, if you're doing Aladdin Jr. and you're figuring out how the heck you do that flying carpet, you know, they tell you in the director's guide that you can, you know, have people holding up someone and then use, you know, clouds are on their hands and then there's a carpet laying across. So they give tips for producing the show easily and choreography guides and all that stuff. I could rattle on about it, but you know, (laughs) I was, okay. I'm so glad you brought this up because I, when I first moved to New York, I was in Brooklyn and my roommate was like the artistic director or something of a Brooklyn theater. And they Mm -hmm. were just, or a Brooklyn children's art center, I think. And they had just um, gotten, I think they were testing out, Frozen's junior or frozen kids or something. Um, and the process that she was kind of explaining to me was so, I was so fascinated by it because it felt like it was like, you know, the preview process that you would do on a Broadway stage, but with, with kids. And so it was kind of, they were kind of getting to test out like, okay, does this, does this length work? Does this, this song style work? Is this, these notes work? Do these uh, chords work for these kids? So I found it fascinating, but what I what I always have loved about MTI is, and you brought it up, the resources, the director's guides, the materials that you guys give. And I feel like it's been a while since I've worked in a show with MTI just because of my career. But I remember I when I was in high school, you know, it has rapidly changed to the you know the last time that I used it, which was probably ten years ago at this point. But I'm sure it's even grown since then. And so. Mm-hmm. What are the conversations? I'm curious as to what are the conversations you're having on how to improve, especially as we have become more and more reliant um, 
on the digital components. Oh my God, like the rehearse score? That yeah. was like the best thing ever. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as much as possible, what we're trying to do is anticipate what challenges producers are going to have when they're putting the show on. Um, we're thinking about uh, if it's, a, especially if it's a show for kids, they're going to need rehearsal tracks that have uh, the students' voices and the keys that are going to be used for the show. What happens uh, if a student can sing the original key? For the Broadway Junior shows, we tend to lock the keys. So just the, the version that's available is available. And part of that is because we don't make orchestrations available for those shows. So there's not an easy way to transpose them. So basically, when you're doing a Broadway Junior show, there's less flexibility with the keys. But for the um, for our broader catalog, we typically have transpositions as avail- available as long as we can. So transpositions is one thing. Um, as you mentioned, rehearse score, which basically has the piano vocal score set up as a computer program. So you can go in and vamp or you can transpose within the program for rehearsal purposes. You can, you know, isolate certain measures as you need to. So we're always trying to figure that out. If there's a show that's very choreography heavy or has really unique direction, a lot of times we'll try to have a director's guide or a choreography guide so that people who are doing the show are not completely, you know, operating blind. As much as possible, we want to give them the tools that they need. And most of the time, you know, as a producer, you're not bound to use every single thing that we have available. But then you know, based on what your strengths are and what you need, you can pick and choose the resources that you need for a given show. With the director and the choreographer's guides, the blocking notes or any of those things that are like very iconic to a show like Les Mis was what comes to mind where they're at the end of act one when they're in that like that triangle form or any of those pieces that are original or um, true to the original staging or the original production is that licensed so meaning that like if you're if you're going to copy some of that staging or choreography is that considered um or is that part of the licensing agreement or is that considered copyrighted? copyrighted yeah that's a great question and that actually cuts to one of the core questions of our business and licensing which is actually that when you license a show through mti for the most part, you're required to be doing a what we would call a non-replica production. So you'd be required not to use the original direction, the original choreography, the original set design, the original costume design. You know, if it's a show with really iconic characters that are based on a movie, you could evoke the flavor of those characters, but you're not allowed to just wholesale copy the, the designs that were done on Broadway. And that's to the benefit of a lot of your former guests who are on here directing, designing, doing all the backstage work you know, who are, you know, who, whose work is all protected in its own right. But for certain shows where there are really iconic stagings, two examples come to mind, the producers, Young Frankenstein, which, you know, have stagings that are pretty memorable and that we wanted to have out there um, as part of the licensing package. Also um, for Fiddler on the Roof, we offer the choreography um, for West Side Story, we offer a choreography package. So some of these shows where the choreography and the staging are really an integral part to the show, uh, then in that case, we offer it as a guide. And sometimes you have to pay an additional fee for the use of that. But when we're acquiring the show, we're thinking about what types of staging elements might be something that our customers would want to use. And if we can acquire that, then we try to. But in, it's not possible in every instance, because sometimes the original folks who worked on the show do not want their work copied. And then in that case, we have to respect that as well. 
I was going to switch gears a little bit and move on to your uh, responsibilities overseeing some of the international relationships in mm-hmm. MTI. Uh, so one of the things that you brought up in that email that you sent to us was translations. Can you just talk about working through those uh, translations and figuring out which productions are go- or which musicals are going to be translated into different languages and how you prioritize that sort of thing? Sure. So once we're taking on a show, one of the early steps will usually be that the producers and the authors will let MTI know which territories we could start to license the show in. In those cases, when we know where we're gonna be able to license the show, usually, but not always, it's gonna be not English speaking. And then in that case, we have local producers that we work with all over the world. And we'll typically go to ask those producers, hey, would you like to do this show? Or perhaps they've already inquired and we've made a note of their interest. And then in that case, as long as you know their request is approved and we bring it to the authors and everyone's happy for it to proceed, in that case, um, sometimes the authors will want to know who would translate the show and usually they'll send us a resume. Um, at the very least, I usually like to request that information anyway so that we can make sure that the translators that we're working with are folks who have experience doing it, who have translated other shows or plays at least, something that's relevant experience to translating a musical because it's not an easy task. And then the translator will usually go and do their work. The translator works for the producer. So MTI does not pay the translators. Um, The producers hire them and then they create the translation. And then the rights for the translation are assigned back to the authors. So the authors own the translations of their work. And the translator is required to register their translation so that it's clear that the authors own it and are able to provide it for future producers. And then basically the approval process is that the translator will have to submit their translation and the producer usually will then hire another translator to translate that translation back into English, if that's not confusing enough. So there will be the original script and then in the middle, there'll be the translation in the local language. And then on the other side of the document, there is a literal retranslation so that the authors can see, has the work been respected? Are there any crazy idioms that don't make any sense that need to be clarified? Are there any jokes that just don't come through? And a lot of times as the translator is submitting that document, they're going to note certain places where there's some crazy phrase that's only in Slovenian, and but that's the closest way they could get this joke to work. You know, they're going to note all those spots because they want to make sure that the authors understand that they're respecting the show. And then we'll bring that to the authors and their agents usually so that they can take a look at the what the translator's done, make sure everything's in the right place, make sure that the tone of the show is coming through. And depending on the author, some authors will review it and say, this looks great to me. Others offer really, really detailed notes and they'll go through and they'll say, look in this song, you know, you really missed the point of X, Y, Z, please, you know, take a closer look at it and come back and give me a new draft. And they work a little bit more hands-on with the translator. It just depends on the author. Um, You know, part of what MTI does is as we're licensing the show after they're done working on the first class production, we're trying to take as much of the burden off of the authors as possible. So Some authors are focused on their new project and they're a little bit less focused on the translation, but we allow them to be as involved as they'd like to be. Sometimes when I get the translation, I'll go through and and give it a pretty good look through the the, uh, back translation 
And, you know, even I can sometimes spot when there are places where something needs to be fixed. I try to give it a pass before I give it to the authors because I want to catch anything glaring. You know, if there's someone, there's a major character name that's been changed or a song missing, I want to make sure that I spot that so that the authors know that we're paying attention to these when they're coming through as well. Right. Now, what what is the timeline of international licensing of, of any given title compared to the licensing across like United States? Well, in terms of the uh, advanced planning time, the international producers tend to plan at least one to two years in advance because they've got so much pre-production work to do. They've got to hire new designers. They've got this translation that they need to work on, which in some cases takes months. And then they're going to submit that to the rights holders and the rights holders need some time to review it as well. They can't be rushed about having to read it because they need to have adequate time. They have their own schedule. So I I believe what we usually require is at least 10 weeks before the first rehearsal, they're supposed to have that document in to give some time for it to be reviewed. We tend to license productions quite in advance of their international premieres. Is there anything else that we might not have touched upon in terms of your international relationships? I mean, I guess the most interesting part of what I do is that as time goes on, I have to learn each individual market better. So I have to keep my eyes peeled for all of the interesting sensitivities, the differences between the different markets. The shows that are going to do well in one country may not do well in another. And I'm trying to always keep my eyes open and my ears open to what the producers are saying in terms of what's working for them, what kind of shows they're looking for, what shows they saw on Broadway that they love, that they would love to do, and try to figure out the best way to match the shows with the specific countries that they're going to be successful in. And it's a challenge, but it's an interesting one. It makes my job much more interesting. Um, you know, it's it's the same within the United States as well, because you have different parts of the country with different sensitivities and all kinds of different theaters that are doing different types of musicals. But internationally, it's even more disparate, I suppose, because you've got different languages. You've got, you know, I, I license in the Middle East and I also license in Latin America. So there's a wide expanse between what's going to be appropriate for one versus the other. Have you had any surprises or is any particular show or shows been more popular in any given area that that shocked you or that you weren't expecting? I don't know if I've been shocked by the success of any particular show. Um, But I am happy when there's a specific show that comes around and, you know, when you recommend a show to a customer and then it ends up being a huge success. I'm not sure if I suggested this to them, but one of the, the shows that I, or one of the productions that I Uh, took a lot of pride in is in South Africa, there was a production at the Fugard Theater, which um, they do a lot of plays, but they do some musicals as well. And they produced Kinky Boots and it was right around the, oh my gosh, I want to say the 20th anniversary of Apartheid ending. And I really thought that was special. They sent through a lot of press clips of their cast on talk shows, speaking about the the difference they thought the show was making in the community. And I, I was touched by that because You know, there was such a division in the country when it came to race. And I really feel like Kinky Boots is one of those shows where it's got really positive message, very energetic music, and it it breaks through those barriers. And that is really what the power of musical theater is. 
you know, when, when it comes down to it, that's why we do what we do. There's something about musical theater, I think, that even when people might be resistant to a particular idea, there's something about song and dance that opens people's minds up, I suppose. And, th- and there's something that's exciting about that, I think. Um, I was also going to ask you what your favorite part of your job is, if you could mm-hmm. narrow it down to just one thing. Oh my goodness. Well, I love to talk to all the different producers and find out what their challenges are, uh, especially in COVID times. It's really been heartening to keep in touch with them because even though these are really challenging times and everyone is just trying to do what they can to get through, people are trying to find a way to make theater happen one way or another. So by hook or by crook, these people, they're gonna find out a way to do a show in a parking lot, or they're gonna do an outdoor promenade performance, or they're going to stream a production. As much as we can grant those rights, we try to be as helpful as we can. We can in every instance, but if we can help someone stream, we'll do that as well. Once in a while, I get to go see some of the international productions that I license, and that's a lot of fun. I've gotten to go to Mexico City and see Billy Elliot. I took a trip to Brazil and I saw uh, Little Mermaid licensed there and also Peter Pan. Uh, A couple of years ago, I went with a colleague of mine over to Budapest and we saw, I believe it was five or six different productions of MTI shows in one week in one city. So that's that's one of the fun parts of my job as well. It's it's, uh, interesting when you're traveling to see some of the international productions because it's easy enough to get a good sense of what they're doing by email or by phone, but it's really not the same as when you're on the ground and you see the theater and you see the people in their environment. You know, it really gives you a much better sense of each market. So as time goes on and I get a better foothold on every one of my markets, as much as I can, I try to go visit productions when I can because that is giving me much more information that I can use to better place shows in the future. So, you know, when you're having those conversations with people in their cities, in their venues, and you can see, you know, this is how they set up their merchandise booth. You know, this is uh, their director and you get to speak with the director, the translator, the cast, and get a sense of, you know, how they're feeling within the production. That's all helpful information for me. So. And that's also an exciting part of my job. So it's a mixture of if talking to people, hearing what their inter- what their challenges are, but also getting out into the field as as it were, and and uh, getting to see the productions on their feet. How do you see the way that MTI and yourself in your role has responded to making theater possible for? folks around the world to still put on shows and still bring theater to um, to their audiences? Well, this pandemic has been such a challenge for everyone in the theater industry, from Broadway to the theaters to actors, everyone. So back in early March, when we knew that a lockdown was kind of on the way, we started to be thinking about Uh, What are solutions for our customers? Is there any way that theater can go forward during a pandemic? You know, basically the answer in terms of in-person theater has mostly been that to be safe, we need to be apart. But as much as possible, we've tried to get rights for shows to be streamed or to be produced remotely. So if you are able to gather the cast on Zoom or via some other capture program, then sometimes people can do their show remotely as well. So we're here basically to try to make whatever theater can happen, happen. 
And a lot of that is helping people postpone their productions to a time when they can get together and safely produce it in person. If we can grant streaming rights, we have those conversations. We do a lot of postponements from one time frame to another. And we're here also to be a sympathetic ear and you know, to hear people's frustrations as well, you know, as much as as much as they're willing to share with us so that we can try to overcome as many obstacles as we can. It's been a challenge for everyone. You know, we're all working remotely. So, um, you know, we're having conversations with our colleagues over Teams and on Zoom and staying in touch as much as we possibly can, because we want to make sure also that within MTI, we're always coordinating and making sure that the shows are best served so that we're not losing our communication while we're all working remotely. And I'm pleased to say it's been, in terms of working with one another, it's been pretty much seamless. You know, we're always in touch with each other all day long and customers are always emailing me. So, you know, as much as you would think that a pandemic would slow down the theater business, it's been a steady stream of people who are really trying to figure out what they're going to do when they come out of this. You know, there's a lot of international producers that are thinking one, two, three years ahead. Theater will find a way. I, I feel confident that we're going to be back soon, hopefully. How are you guys working out like pricing for shows that are virtual? At least within North America, it varies a little bit internationally, but we have our own streaming platform that uh, is through a company called Showtix for You. And uh, Showtix for You will host productions um, for, the, for producers in North America, and they provide a platform for the video to be shown. And then they also will collect the ticket sales. So the tickets are all sold through the same platform. And then the royalties are just distributed automatically to MTI. So it's as easy as, as possible. I have a follow-up question to that. So with, with Showtix for You, is, it, are they, is the option to do it live like virtually, but live a thing, or is it all pre-recorded, or is it dependent on what the streaming licensing package includes? Exactly right. It depends on the show. Um, we basically have four categories. We have live streaming, so the stream is happening literally as the production is being done. Uh, typically, that would be everyone's gathered in a theater without an audience. That's usually what happens, and then that is broadcast to audiences remotely. There's also scheduled streaming, which is they're recording one performance that they're doing perhaps in an empty theater. And then they're scheduling specific days and times to show that, you know, Friday and Saturday at eight o'clock, we're going to stream the show. The other option is that they could show it on demand, um, which is available for fewer of our titles because not all rights holders want that to be made available as an option. It's, it gets a little bit closer to a Netflix model for theater, which not, not every uh, author or rights holder wants to make available, or sometimes they can't make it available. And then there's also the remote performance, which is when everyone's at their home and they're doing it over Zoom and perhaps some splicing together is needed to make sure that all the scenes are working. Uh, and then that is shown via ShowTix for you. So it'd be captured on a platform like Zoom or some other conferencing software. And then it's shown through ShowTix for you. There's an option through the um, website that lets you do that. Mary, would you like to move on to our lightning round? Yes, let's do it. What is one thing about the theater industry that confuses you? You know, I don't know if this is a direct answer to your question or a kind of a pivot. It's not, it's not doesn't necessarily confuse me, but one of the things that that has been sort of a challenge uh, when you're taking on new shows is there are a lot more moving parts than there used to be. You know, back in the olden days when you used to have, you know, Guys and Dolls was coming available for licensing, you would really just have a script and score. And now there are so many moving parts. So you've got orchestrations, you've got keyboard programming, you've got 
oh gosh, logo pack. You've got all kinds of different moving parts that you have to sort out before the show becomes available. So I don't know if it's if it confuses me as much as it challenges me, but you know that's one of the things that uh, when we're taking on shows, we try to wrap our heads around all of that and and uh, hold it all in our in our reach so that we can you know best bring the show to the market. What are three adjectives that describe your ideal working environment? Mm, okay, collaborative, knowledgeable, and safe. Uh, what is one job in the theater industry that you would trade jobs with for one week? Hmm. Well, I think that I would probably trade with a lyricist because it's something that's always been interesting to me. I love words. I love wordplay. I have such great respect for all of the composers and lyricists that we work with. And, you know, when you're sitting in the theater and you're listening to a great song and you hear like that really clever lyric, that's like the coolest thing ever. Uh, and I would love to uh, get to be inside the brain of a lyricist for a week. I think that'd be fun. What's one hobby that you have outside of theater or your work? Oh my gosh. Well, my partner would say that I have about, I don't know, 10 or 20 too many jigsaw puzzles and board games around the apartment at the moment, because now that we're all locked down, it's pretty much the only thing that I can think of to do that doesn't keep you on your screen all the time. I mean, otherwise, I just find myself sitting, looking at my phone, looking at YouTube, and you can get down a spiral of YouTube videos that is kind of mind numbing. So right now, I'm looking for anything that keeps me away from looking at the screen for hours on end. What is one title or IP that you'd love to see be made into a play or a musical? I mean, this sounds crazy. I don't think it would ever work, but I'd love to see a Star Wars musical. I think that'd be really fun. Something related to Star Wars. So this next question, I don't want to say I stole it from guys who like musicals, but I'm sharing it with them. Uh, a great podcast that our listeners should probably take a look at if they're enjoying our episodes. But they ask uh, a question towards the end of their episodes where they ask, like, is there any sort of like book or resources that you find helpful in your process? Hmm. Well, I am always looking at... Um, currency translation webs or currency conversion websites like xe.com have a giant world map at my desk that I'm not near now, which I use all the time because as much as you try to be a geography expert when you're in international licensing, occasionally you are stumped and you need to have that resource. And I also think I have a big atlas that I use once in a while. Um, Aside from that, I mean, as much as I can, I try to read books about theater. There's a great book by Arthur Lawrence called Mainly on Directing that I really enjoyed. You know, reading about the backstory of different shows is exciting. Like Everything Was Possible by Ted Chapin is a great book. Um, you know, sometimes there are, you know, books, books of lyrics that are interesting to look at, like Sondheim's books of lyrics. So, you know, as much as possible, I think that when you're working in licensing, it helps to be as much of an expert in theater as you can. Um, you know, when I was first starting out, uh, before I worked at MTI, I worked at Samuel French and I was in amateur licensing there. And when I was a youngster in the theater biz, I just wanted to go see as many shows as possible. Uh, you know, I think there were weeks I saw maybe eight shows in a week. So just as many possible shows as you can see. That's my advice always to people who are getting into theater is see as much as you can read as much as you can you know, never burn bridges, try to make as many relationships as possible. And that's all you can hope for, you know, then you're building a life in the theater. Once you have relationships and you have a deep knowledge of theater, 
then there is a path, there is a place for you in the theater industry. What's the first show you want to see when Broadway reopens? Oh my gosh. Well, the first show I want to see when Broadway reopens is probably Company, the um, female Bobby version with Katrina Lenk. Because I saw the West End production a couple of years ago and it was wonderful. And I can't wait to see what she does with that show. Um, there are many shows that I would love to see. I also can't wait for the revival of Carolina Change. I think that's going to be wonderful. There are a lot of shows. So I, I, I always hate to exclude any shows. You know, that's why I say that we treat all of our shows equally. I, I have many favorites. and I'm looking forward to all of the shows. But those are two. Those are two of the ones. How can our listeners find you on social media or, you know, if you have any other social channels that you want to plug? Oh, my goodness. You know, I keep my social channels pretty much personal, so yeah. I don't really have a place for people to follow me, but they can go to mtishows.com and they can see our catalog of shows. And Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Page to Stage. To keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Page to Stage Podcast. And if you're enjoying these conversations, we would really appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Until next time. That's Brian. That's Mary. We'll see you later. Bye. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.